and that's what the Thessalonians were looking forward to. And, some, and uh, Paul had, in 2 Thessalonians, he, he wrote to correct some of those misconceptions of how soon Christ's coming was. You know, when, when Paul said, they, we which are alive and remain, it may be that they took him to mean during his lifetime Christ was returning. And they were looking greatly forward to it. Problem was, some of them apparently, perhaps that's not exactly what they were thinking, but were not working now in light of Christ's coming, in light of his return soon, or whether they just felt they didn't need to anymore because the church was there for them and would provide for them. The problem with that is somebody, if, if the church is providing, somebody's working to provide. And so Paul writes to them to encourage them to be faithful to Christ and to keep working uh, and supporting themselves, not depending upon others if they're able to um, support themselves. And he continues that. Last week we saw how he followed up his uh, further instructions, further instructions of how not to be afraid of the future events surrounding Christ's return, including the reign of the Antichrist. And when he had finished that, what we looked at last week were his admonitions concerning faithfully continuing to serve Christ uh, by standing fast in sound doctrine uh, and by praying for ministers of the gospel and by relying upon God's protection to keep from them from evil. And now tonight we're going to conclude our study of 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to focus on Paul's final commands, where Paul focuses on not growing weary and well-doing. And he gives the second he gives the Thessalonians, in closing, four commands, four main commands here. In his closing, his second letter to the Thessalonian church, and the last one that is recorded to that church in Scripture, with these four commandments. First, he's going to command them, and we'll see this repeated, really, in 6 and 11, and mentioned in 14 through 15, to separate from those who are not doing right, those who are walking disorderly. And we'll look at that in those verses. Second, he commands that we follow, that the Thessalonians specifically, but for us as well, to follow Paul's example that he had set for them by faithfully serving Christ. And we'll see how Paul set that example. Third, Paul commands those who are able to work to do so, to support themselves. He says that they must work to support themselves if they are able. We'll see that in verse 10 and verse 12. And then finally, fourth, he commands that we keep working without ever becoming depressed, to be not weary in well-doing. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each one gathered here tonight. And we pray that you would speak to each of us here tonight through your word 
and through this message from your word. And I pray that you would give me the right words as, as I seek to exposit your word and to apply your word to our lives, to edify us as your church, that we would not be weary in well-doing. Please help everyone to be able to hear and for me to clearly give this message from your word. For your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. Starting, I'm going to focus, take each command, and uh, usually I take them section of verses by section of verses, but instead I'm going to trace each command, jumping from verse 6 to 11 and then 14 through 15, looking at that first command to separate from those who are not doing right. Verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. And remember that tradition we mentioned, that was mentioned uh, last week as well in, uh, in chapter 2, particularly verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And that tradition is not referring to the way we've always done things, but rather what we taught you. And Paul's going to go on in our, his second command to remind them, follow my example. Part of the tradition, part of his teaching, was how he led by his example. And we'll look at that in the second command. So he commands to withdraw. And that's, that's a very strong word. It's only used um, in the original language one other time in Scripture in a, in a very different context. But um, here... He's, he's, he's emphasizing this as a command. We command you, brethren. And Paul doesn't do this all the time, like you might think. He, it's not usually his way to say, I am commanding you do this. I'm ordering you do this. But here he's doing that, very emphatically. And uh, he's addressing them as brethren. And he's invoking Jesus Christ. Um, we command you, not just by Paul's word, as he's not using his own authority, I command you by my name, by my, he does give his, his example as testimony, but not by his authority, but by the authority he's given in Christ, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw. So he's making a very serious point here. This is very important. This is a very important command. It's very emphatic that we withdraw the, from those, from every brother that walketh disorderly. And this disorderly, walking disorderly, walking refers to living, um, their way, manner of living, their way of life. Refer um, to withdraw yourself from everyone who walketh disorderly is referring to separate yourselves from those who are living in such a way that they are not submitting themselves to Christ and that they are not able, by the way that they are living, they're not able to be in submission to Christ as long as they continue to live that way. They're not in submission to Christ. They're not able to be in submission to Christ as long as they refuse to give up this way of living that they have. And he's going to address this one particular issue that he has in mind here. You know, there's other... Um, 
Second Corinthians, First Corinthians deals with another issue regarding morality and separating from a believer who's living an immoral lifestyle. That's not what he has in mind here. In fact, how he addresses that separation is, is fairly different than how he addresses this one. Let's drop down to verse 11. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly. So here he repeats it. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. And here he does a little play on words, a little bit of contrast, even in the original language. It comes across in our English very well as, as well, uh, especially if you were to consider it this way. He's telling us to be busy, but separate from busy bodies, people who are not being busy the way they should. They're not working, but rather because they're not working. And this is also referred to when he talks about younger widows and how they should remarry because they tend to just go from house to house. It's idle, talking, gossiping. Um, and he, that's what he's referring to here, that people are causing problems because they're not busy serving the Lord. They're not, and they're not working. They're not working to provide their own needs, uh, provide their own income. They're depending on others for that. And meanwhile, they're idle. And it's been said that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And that's a similar situation here. They're busybodies. And perhaps that sometimes maybe they're not even talking evil. Maybe they're not speaking evil or speaking gossip. That's not necessarily the case here. It can be that they're just talking about you know, heaven and the future and end time events. And they're not working. They're just talking. Um, it's been said, and this is not usually the case today, usually it's the opposite, but it's been said that someone can be so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. And that would fit this right here. Um, but usually it's the other way around. Usually we're so earthly minded, we're no heavenly good because we're too busy you know, building our own wealth or happiness, physical happiness here on this earth, rather than thinking of seeking First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But here people are apparently, they're so focused on Christ's return and future events such as the Antichrist, because Paul had to address that, that they're more concerned about talking about all of these things. Maybe they're discussing of, well, hey, what's the latest news from Rome? What's the latest news you know, what's going on in the world around us, and maybe, you know, maybe Nero, maybe he's the Antichrist. You know, maybe they're talking about stuff like that, um, but they're not doing some of the things they should be. They're neglecting their work, and, in, and while they're doing that, they're draining resources from the church, because the church is apparently supporting them. Because remember, and not that this is the way it, it's always supposed to be. It was how the church began at, in Acts. And so we assume in, the, in Thessalonica, it's a similar situation where they had things in common, where they brought things together, each one as they had the ability and each one as they had need, that redistributed their goods amongst themselves and in a communal sort of way. And that was a problem even, for example, in history at the founding of Jamestown here in the United States in 1607, as well as the founding of Plymouth in 1620, both colonies. In the case of Plymouth, they, they came for 
the pilgrims, the separatists, they especially came for religious freedom. Jamestown, they had more economic, they were looking for gold and, and other, some way to bring a profit to their company. Even though they did put in their purpose that one of their purposes, even at Jamestown, was to evangelize the Indians. Um, but that was, and that was certainly a purpose that the pilgrims had in mind as well. But they were especially going to go and practice their faith and beliefs um, un, uh, uninhibited by the British, uh, by the Church of England and the king, uh, the way that they had been when they were back in England and the way they had been worldly influenced back in, in Holland when they went there for religious freedom. But bo in both cases, when they came to America, they, they set up a system, economic system, called a common storehouse. And this was, is what we kind of saw in Acts, see in Acts as well. And it didn't work for Jamestown, it didn't work for Plymouth, because everyone brought what they grew, what they collected in hunting or fishing, um, digging up clams, oysters, whatever. Um, they brought their food to the common storehouse and they divided it up equally among the colonists. And the reason that didn't work is some people were refusing to work. And Jamestown was especially because some were upper class and they weren't used to getting their hands dirty and working. And some of them were just out looking for gold and of course not finding it, spending all their time doing that and uh, not bringing in the food. And they were leaving that work to others. And so there wasn't enough food to go around. And so Captain John Smith at Jamestown instituted, if any will not work, he will not eat. And it comes right from this passage where we're gonna read tonight. If any will not work, he will not eat. And that was the rule. And of course, that worked at Jamestown. People started working. And at Plymouth, they had a similar situation. Um, they were probably more disposed to work there, but they even found there that there wasn't enough. There were sh food shortages because people just weren't as motivated to work when they knew that everyone was going to get, you weren't going to get any more based on you're working more. I mean, if everybody worked more, there'd be more to go around. That's true. But you personally were not necessarily at a greater advantage than the person who worked less. And so some people, human nature being the way it is, worked less and depended on others. But when William Bradford had the lands redistributed so that uh, each person had their own plot to farm, they were given their own land, and their, the, their storehouse would be their own then. They would not bring their own harvest to the common storehouse. They would live off of their own food and sell it if they wanted to. And that worked. That, was prosper that prospered and led to the free market, free enterprise system, sometimes called capitalism, that we have in America today. The American dream. The American dream. And, uh, and so back to the Thessalonians, some of them were taking advantage in that common storehouse type of way where they're relying on other people in the church to support them. And Paul is telling them that's not right. You need to work. Um, don't just depend on others. Those who are able to work should do so. And let's look at verses 14 and 15. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. And what he's saying here essentially is exclude them from the fellowship dinner. If they're not going to bring anything and they never work and they never bring anything. I don't think we need to worry about this as much today. Um, 
here in America. I don't think we have to start making, if you don't bring any food, you can't come to the fellowship meal. But here it was such an issue, particularly because the church was just starting. And so they had that mentality of having all things in commons and giving to those who need. But some people were taking advantage they didn't really need. They could have provided their own and they weren't doing so. And so he says, mark that person, separate them from your company, don't support them. They're draining your resources, make them support themselves. That's what he's saying here. And it's different from the kind of separation that he calls for at Corinth, where there was somebody committing incest, and he said, get that person out of your church. Um, it's a little different situation here. Here, it's somebody is draining the church's resources, and he's telling the church, don't support that person. And verse 15, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. At, the cult, at this time in this culture, and of course Christ spoke to this as well, as how you should treat your enemy, love your enemy. The, it was typical not to just tolerate enemies, but rather to show them ill will. And Paul is not asking for that here. He's telling them, count him as an enemy. Do not count him, yet count him not as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. So this was all, in the end, it was for that person's own good. They were going to separate from them so that person would learn to work and not become dependent. And we'll come back to that idea a little bit later too. Yes, Betty. I may be confused here, so I'm going to ask. Okay. Um, for verse 14. Yes. Now, I've got a different translation here, but it says on the second part, and do not associate with him, like you said, don't, take him to your fellowship dinner or whatever, um, so that he may be put to shame. Now, mm -hmm. if you're going to not associate with him, how does that mean that you can admonish him as a brother? You know, the 15, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. I guess I'm a little confused on, well, how far do you say be separate from? You see what I mean? Well, it's, it's obviously not saying don't talk with this person. This is not necessarily a person who's spreading bad doctrine unless they're spreading the doctrine that, hey, we can all stop working, okay, and teaching that, which by example, in a way they are, but what it's basically saying here is do not support them. Don't let them um, become dependent on you. Force them to have to support that? themselves. Support um, I, that, is, uh, that, is, that is the intent of, of this. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man have no company with him. And the purpose of that, that he may be ashamed, that's, that's what it's getting at. So that he will realize, oh, um, I don't have anything and I should have been working. I should go back to work. Um, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In other words, they're not to think of himself as, as, their, as their enemy, but just like if you have a family member who has gone astray and, and the way you try to uh, admonish them, win them back over, you're not, um, you're not shunning them, but you're trying to get them to where they need to be. Re, uh, rehab type of idea here. You're not ignoring the problem and treating them like nothing is wrong, but you're not shunning them and not this person. Uh, this is a different situation than the person who is a false teacher of, of doctrine saying that, you know, Jesus is not, like for example, this is not talking about how we're supposed to act towards someone who's teaching that Jesus is not God or something like that, or how we're supposed to treat somebody who's 
living in open immorality or any kind of immorality. Um, but this is talking about someone who is draining the resources of the church, cut their support off basically, and admonish them that they need to be working. Admonishing them here the, through the context is let them know they need to be working and force them to do so by not partner, partnering with them and allowing them to take advantage of you. So that's, that's what this is getting at here. Um, and there is definitely a place for separating from anyone who's teaching false doctrine or immorality, and that's dealt with other parts of the Bible as well. Here the issue, especially the context, shows you that it's, it's specifically dealing with someone who's walking disorderly. They're not living in submission to Christ by serving, and not just not serving in the church. They're not providing for their needs, their physical need for food, um, in the way that it should be. And we'll come back to a little bit more about that in some of these other commands. But So that's the first command, is separate from those who are not doing right. That's what he opens with in verse 6, and we see that explained further down. But then secondly, follow the example of Paul in serving Christ and supporting yourself as you are able, or at least not taking advantage. You know, Paul certainly could have perhaps spent even more time just teaching if he hadn't had to support himself uh, financially, but to give them an example of how they should be working and not taking advantage of, of the rest of the church, he provided for his needs without taking a salary. Uh, look at verse uh, seven, for yourselves know how ye ought to be, ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. So he did not act the way these people uh, who he is addressing here to separate yourselves from, uh, to withdraw yourselves from. He did not act that way when he was with them. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day, day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. And so anything that he was given, he had worked for that. Um, and he didn't require anybody to give them anything. He was supported by the Philippian church, we know from, from the book of Philippians, uh, and I believe Acts as well, that he was sent gifts and supported uh, as a missionary, but also he, we know he worked with his hands as a tent maker. And we know that even if he was at any time relying on the support of others or being given hospitality and food, and you know, we know he was at Jason's house in Thessalonica, uh, whatever he was given, he wasn't just taking advantage. He was providing the service of, of teaching and admonishing you know, working night and day for their benefit. And because he was working for their benefit, he's going to even mention here that he could have required that they fully support him. He didn't demand that, but he, he said, you know, that would have been right for you to fully support me because I was serving you. I was serving you full time. Uh, here, you see that in this following verses. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. So he would have had the authority, he would have had the power, he would have had the right 
to take a full salary for the work that he was doing among them. It was common um, in that even the Greek culture there, especially um, for those who went and gave speeches, public speeches, philosophers, lovers of wisdom, people would gather to hear them and they would make a living just public speaking. But Paul wasn't doing that. Partly, perhaps, because he wanted to contrast himself with that, that he wasn't just giving these speeches to be heard because he could make good speeches and make a living that way, like some of the philosophers did. This wasn't just another philosophy that he was presenting. This was a way of life that he was serious about, and for that reason, he wanted to contrast himself with those other philosophers, those other public speakers, those other orators, and therefore he worked with his hands to provide for himself, didn't demand a salary. He didn't demand payment. He didn't charge admission to his speeches. He didn't do that. Huh. He, he certainly was given hospitality, he had some support that was given to him, and he could have it. He said he would have been right if he had demanded a full salary for his work among them, but he didn't do so. He wanted to set an example for everyone in the church that if he, he Paul, could have taken a salary for the work that he was doing because he was rightly, he was basically a full-time minister. He was a full-time minister, even though he's doing some bivocational work to support himself. If he didn't draw from the church for all of his needs, then how should someone who is just a member of the church do so without working? And so that's, that's what he's saying here is he's providing the example to be followed and that's why he's doing it. He's providing an example for the Thessalonians, and that's why he's able to, to come out so strongly here with his command to work, and that if anyone does not work, he shall not eat, because of his own example, his own testimony, which was strong with them, as the Thessalonians could think of, because he had only been there a few months ago, uh, and they knew his testimony. They knew that he had faithfully served them, that he could have charged them for his services, and yet he did not. He didn't demand that. He was willing to work to provide for himself if he needed to. So that's the second command here, is that we follow Paul's example. And the third, third command Paul gives regarding to not be weary in well-doing is that we who are able to must work to support themselves. The, the key being we who are able to, because this is not exempting, Paul is not trying to exempt the church here from supporting those who really need help. There are some who may perhaps widows or handicapped that might need, you know, children, orphans, that might need the church's support in some way. They might need uh, help. And Paul is not exempting the church from helping them. But he emphasizes that those who are able should work to support themselves. That's his third command, verse 10. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Notice it's would not work. Not that they could not work, but they would not work, which is different from not being able to. So these are able-bodied people who could work but are not working, therefore they should not eat. And the idea here, in, from what I understand of the original language, is that the emphasis is not on we're going to force you to work and we're going to take away your food, but it's the idea that if somebody doesn't want to work, well, let that person just 
since he's choosing not to work, let him choose not to eat. In other words, it's, it, he's using rhetorical device here, emphasizing, of course you want to eat. So of course you should work. That's what he's saying. Of course you want to eat, so of course you should work. And then look at verse 12. Now them that are such, now them that are as such, and remember verse 11 had talk, talked again about separating from someone who's disorderly, specifically, they're not working at all, but they're busybodies. But verse 12, now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So he, and there's that proverb that says, the talk of the lips tendeth to poverty or penury. Um, so talking, he said, instead of talking, you need to be working. Don't just sit around talking, get to work uh, and support yourselves, support the church, support the work of the church. Don't make the work, church, don't drain the resources of the church to support you. And so again, the, the background is that there, there were philosophers who did this. There's philosopher, there were full-time public speakers in Greece, uh, in Macedonia, at Thessalonica being in Macedonia, north, just north of Greece. And so the, the hearers would have been familiar with that. And uh, Paul wanted to contrast himself with that. You know, some, some missionaries. Um, missionaries, I believe, um, should, when they get on the field, if they're staying in one church and they're ministering to that church, they should be able to be supported by that church eventually. They shouldn't be uh, full-time always drawing all their support from the sending churches. They should tell the sending churches, okay, you can send someone else now. I am supported on the field. Or they should continue, you know, turn that church over to someone locally who is going to continue to pastor that church, go on to another city, plant another church. And that's the type of missionary work that I think can, uh, sending churches should support is the type of missionary who either for a short time he's going to get support and then he's going to release, relinquish that support because he's fully supported on the mission field now or continue to support him as he goes on, uh, sets up a church, establishes a church, turns that over to the locals, moves on to another city like Paul was doing. And he got supported uh, by the Philippian church. So you see the precedent for that type of support for missionary work. Um, but if you know, a missionary was to get on the field, stay in one church forever, and continue to draw all his support from, this, from sending church, and yet he's working all the full time in that church, which m could be able to support him through his own labors, but he's still depending on the church. I think that'd be an example of walking disorderly as well. And I think a good illustration of what Paul is saying here about if any um, will not work, neither should he eat. Uh, when, I, when I gave the summary sermon uh, over the whole book, I mentioned this, but I want to come back to it. I pulled up a couple of articles off the internet about feeding, not feeding, waterfowl, not feeding deer. There's some interesting things. Because I, I remember not long ago, I was listening to 
the conservative talk show that I like to listen to every once in a while, which is Mark Levin. And uh, sometimes I don't always agree with everything he says, but sometimes I hear good things on there. Somebody called in was complaining about how environmentalists value animal life over human life. And then they mentioned uh, uh, something in passing about the, the laws that are being passed about not feeding wildlife. And then Mark Levin stopped them and said, wait a minute, I think you're missing something here. There's a good, good, there's a good, something good that you said, repeat what you said. And he said, well, they say if you feed the animal, the wildlife, uh, whether it was waterfowl or deer, I forget what exactly animal he mentioned, they will become dependent and not know how to feed themselves. And that's harmful to them. And he said, oh, wait a minute. Do we do that with people? Do we do that with people? Do we make people dependent? Feeding people who are able to feed themselves, just not willing to work. And then we harm them by supporting them. And it's interesting that these articles um, talk about that. That uh, Why shouldn't I feed deer? Habituation. Deer are fed by humans, become dependent on the easy food source, and stop foraging. Deer are much better at feeding themselves on their own. When you feed deer and then stop, or when the food temporarily runs out, they will go hungry and may become a nuisance as they search for more easy food. Once deer are habituated, they can become demanding, even bumping at doors and windows to get their expected handout. Uh, it may seem manageable to feed a doe with two fawns in the spring, but by fall they become three adults demanding dinner every day. Additionally, landscaping vegetation can be damaged where deer are concentrated through feeding areas. And you ever know, notice what parts of cities are run down? The parts where everybody's dependent on government handouts. Um, and so Paul doesn't want that to happen with the church. You know, and I think the government, you know, by the way, the end of this article says, what can I do? Very end of it says, if you're already feeding deer and would like to stop, slowly decrease the amount of food you are offering. Do not remove all the food at once. This way the deer will have time to adjust their browsing habits and learn to eat on their own again. And I think that's what our government should do. And if anyone... I think the food stamp program, all of the welfare programs should be completely ended, but not all at once. And if anyone really needs help, I think that would provide the opportunity for churches like ours to really have, be a light and have, have a ministry to people who are really in need. And also people's families and friends to help. And uh, that was something that you know, President Calvin Coolidge believed in. It's something that we got away from starting in the Great Depression under... Uh, starting with Hoover, uh, really, and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and it just has built ever since. Uh, one, one program after another, one president after another, one administration, and I, I'd love to see us get back to a more biblical basis. If anyone would not work, will not work, neither should he eat. And even going back to the founding of this country, they tried this common storehouse, it didn't work, uh, and it's, it's causing lots of problems today. And uh, on Stop Feeding the Waterfowl, it says, is it good to feed? This is from the New York State of Opportunity Department of Environmental Cons Conservation. Is it good to feed waterfowl? No. Artificial feeding is actually harmful to waterfowl. It can cause poor nutrition, increased hybridization, water pollution, 
delayed migration, concentrations of in, at unnatural sites, overcrowding, spread of disease, costly management efforts, unnatural behavior, cumulative effects, devaluation of the species. I think all of that really happened with welfare as well. And uh, that's what happens when people become dependent. You know, and uh, alternatives to feeding waterfowl. If everyone stops feeding the waterfowl, the waterfowl won't disappear. Families can still visit sites to enjoy viewing the ducks and geese. A child can still be encouraged to learn more about waterfowl and their natural habits. And some zoos offer feeding of captive waterfowl. Um, clearly, you do not need to feed the waterfowl in order to enjoy them. In fact, it should be apparent now that the best thing you can do for the overall benefit of waterfowl is to stop artificial feeding. And that's true, but uh, yeah, but I, I just think it's interesting that even government resources have acknowledged handouts are bad for animals. <laughs> will, will that ever translate into it's bad for people as well? Um, and uh, there's also the argument out there that the government does it, you know, to control the population. That's what we did to the American natives. To get them under control, we put them on reservations and provided uh, welfare for them. And then it's been done with other populations of society, the poor, and to, to be, make them depend on the government. And, you know, there's a whole system of vote for me, I'll give you that, this or that, and it's just corrupt. And uh, hopefully um, that can be changed. But uh, the church is to be a light. You know, the church is to be an example. And Paul tells us how we, it starts with us, we are to work. If any will not work, let, neither should he eat. And he wasn't saying that for, he wasn't addressing the bread and circuses of the Roman Empire, because they did it too. And it really brought uh, very harmful effects to the Roman Empire, um, their economy, the bread and circuses, the welfare of Rome. He wasn't addressing that. He wasn't addressing society in general or politics. He was addressing the church when he wrote this. It applies well to society as, at large, but it was, it was meant for the church. Pull up. All right. So that's the third command. If anyone is able to support themselves, they should do so rather than becoming dependent upon the church. The fourth command, the last command that Paul closes his epistle to the Thessalonians is for us to keep working without ever becoming depressed. That's, we see this in verse 13. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And the grammar of the original language, you know, there's different tenses in Greek, and the grammar here specifies in the original that the Thessalonians, by the grammar, were not. It's saying, you are not depressed. You are not weary and well-doing. Don't get weary and well-doing. So it's not saying, you're weary and well-doing, stop being well-weary. It's telling them before they ever get to that point, don't ever let it happen. Don't ever get to the point where you're weary and well-doing. And specifically, he's talking about becoming 
spiritually depressed because certainly they might physically get tired. They physically might get weary, even perhaps emotionally at times. But spiritually, don't get to the point where you're depressed and unable to work because you're weary in doing good. And we see also an important part of this, verse 16. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. And it's ultimately, it's God's strength, God's power, God's peace that helps us, that allows us not to be weary in well-doing, to not get um, spiritually depressed and to keep on working, to keep on serving God and to provide for our, our own needs without becoming dependent. Verse 17, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is a token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It may be that he had used um, by dictation someone else to write down earlier part of this epistle and now signs it at the end. That was actually common at this time in history for authors to do that, to have someone else write their letter, but at, at the end they would sign in their own handwriting. Or perhaps he writes the whole thing in his handwriting. Anyhow, he ends with the same salutation that he ended First Thessalonians with. Salutation of Paul, thy own hand. Uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And uh, the grace, the kindness of the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is our example for not growing weary and well-doing. He bore the cross. Yeah, certainly he was physically weary uh, when he did that. He had to have help to physically carry that cross to Calvary. And certainly he was emotionally weary in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweat blood. But he did, wasn't spiritually depressed when he did this. He, he endured. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And now he's sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he's, that is our motivation. He's used in Hebrews 12, too, for us to run the race that is set before us. For us not to grow weary in well-doing, but to endure, to work. So in closing his second and final letter, as recorded in Scripture, to the Thessalonian church, Paul emphasized the not growing weary in well-doing. He did this with four commands. The first was to separate ourselves from those who walk disorderly, those who are not willing to work, even though they're able to work. And second, he commanded that we follow his example. He served faithfully and worked to support himself as needed. He did not demand um, full support. But third, also, he commanded that if any would not work, that they should not eat. So he's commanding if you're able-bodied, work to support yourself. If, you're, if you don't have to depend on the church, don't depend on the church. Um, fourth, um, never become. Don't get to the point where you become depressed spiritually so that you're not able to keep working because you've grown weary and well-doing. Are we today, do we faithfully 
serve God in this way? Are we working? Are we serving in our church? And are we supporting our church and not depending on the church? Let's, let's be determined that we, that will always be the case, that we will be faithful. The way that the Thessalonians were encouraged to be faithful by Paul and the way that Paul was encouraged that the Thessalonians were faithful. You know, they weren't weary in well-doing and that is commendable that they give us that example of a church that was enduring persecution. They didn't understand everything. They were a new church. There was no Bible for them at that time except the Old Testament. All they had was First and Second Thessalonians. And so Paul writes to encourage them. And this can encourage us today. The Thessalonian, Paul set example for the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians in turn, to the extent that is testified in these books, set example for us of serving Christ faithfully, being faithful to the teachings that God gave them through Paul. Let's us be faithful to God's word and let's be diligent and endure whatever God brings us in this life and serve in whatever way we are able and support the ministry of our church here at the Bible Church of Lakeshore. Let's close in prayer.